Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Sailor, and I'm the Vice President of the Edwin J. Fulner Institute at the Heritage Foundation. On behalf of our President, Kay Coles James, I'd like to welcome you to our three-part series entitled, Bolstering the American Story, A Legacy of Freedom, 1620 and the Mayflower Compact. We are so thrilled to partner with Dr. Eric Patterson and the Religious Freedom Institute as we celebrate the 400th anniversary of the signing of the Mayflower Compact. This happened on November 11, 1620. Part one of our series will focus on the Mayflower Compact and the foundations of religious liberty. We have assembled a distinguished group of scholars to address the central themes of this remarkable declaration, a bold experiment in government by consent involving not a king, but yes, a community of individuals on equal political terms with one another. Like the American revolutionaries who followed their steps 150 years later, these pilgrims derived their right to self-government from God. We will see this belief anchored their political community and everything that flowed from it. Some would like to offer 1619, the year when enslaved Africans were first brought to our shores as the date of the American founding. But the year 1620 would be a better candidate. In the Mayflower Compact, we can discern the roots of the founders' commitment to religious freedom, to the rule of law, and to the rights of private property. And I can think of no better qualified scholar to help us understand the enduring significance of this document than Dr. Wilfred McClay. Dr. McClay is a visiting scholar here at the Heritage Foundation and holder of the G.T. and Libby Blackenship Chair in the History of Liberty at the University of Oklahoma. Dr. McClay is a recipient of many teaching awards and honors, as well as fellowships from the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. From 2002 through 2012, Dr. McClay served on the National Council of the Humanities, the advisory board for the National Endowment for the Humanities. He was recently honored by the White House for his acclaimed book, Land of Hope, an invitation to the great American story. I deeply believe that Dr. McClay's book will become one of the most important tools available to defeating the anti-Americanism that we're seeing. His book offers a fresh, honest, and inspiring account of the American journey toward a more just and democratic society. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Wilford McClay. Hello and welcome to this celebration of the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower Compact. I'm Wilford McClay. The Plymouth colony was not the first English colony in the New World. It was not even the first successful English colony in the New World. But it may have been the most important particularly for the precedents it established and the legacies that it left. There's a strong case to be made that November 11th, the day that a battered square rigger called the Mayflower made safe harbor in uh, in a place near what is today Provincetown, Massachusetts, that that day should be one of the greatest moments in our national history comparable to the 4th of July, Independence Day, and September 17th, Constitution Day. 
But let me qualify that statement a little bit. We think of the pilgrims as our forebears, and we're right to do so, but it's important to remember that they and the other Puritans who were settling New England at the time did not imagine that they were establishing the United States of America. Nothing could have been further from their minds. They were doing something entirely different. They were about the business of establishing a place where they could enjoy a pure and uncorrupted church. The earliest settlers of Virginia had been motivated primarily by material considerations. They wanted what the Spaniards wanted from their colonies, gold or wealth, material wealth. But the settlers of New England uh, were driven in almost entirely by religious zeal. Most of them were Puritans, men and women of a Calvinist religious bent who believed that the Church of England had not gone far enough to purge itself of its corrupt aspects and who despaired of such a cleansing renewal ever coming in their lifetimes. Hence their decision to emigrate to the new world for a new beginning. The Plymouth colonists in particular were not only Calvinists, but also separatists, meaning that they had separated themselves from the Church of England as a hopelessly corrupted body, and they preferred to worship an independent, congregational, meaning self-governing, churches. After 11 years of living in increasingly difficult exile in the Netherlands, they secured a land patent from the Virginia Company, it permitted them to establish an English colony where they could practice their faith freely. That was their dream. So across the ocean they came aboard the Mayflower and made landfall at what is today Cape Cod, a place outside the Virginia Company's jurisdiction, and indeed outside the jurisdiction of any known government. That was a problem. There were clear and present dangers in these circumstances, which were unexpected. And the group's leaders knew that. They were especially worried that the colony might not be able to hold together as a law-abiding entity in the absence of some larger controlling authority. About half of those on board were not uh, members of the separatist group. They were known as strangers. That was the, the pilgrim's term for them. Non-separating passengers who had various motives, uh, mostly non-religious motives, for making the trip, but whose skills and labor were going to be essential to the success of the colony. Some among the strangers had indicated, once uh, it was known where the landing would be taking place, that because the colony was going to be planted outside uh, the, the ambit of the royal charter, they might feel free to go wherever they wanted. And as one of them said, use their own liberty, for none had power to command them. This was a frightening prospect to the leaders. What were they going to do about it? Well, what they did in response was they drafted and signed on November 11th a short document they would come to call the Plymouth Combination. We call it the Mayflower Compact, although that's a name that was not applied to the document until the 1790s. In that document, they committed themselves to, quote, covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic, close quote, and committed themselves to obey any and all laws and authorities that would be established thereby. This would turn out to be one of the most primal constitutional moments in history, one that established the principle of self-rule that would be the heartbeat of the American Republic and its free institutions. Over two centuries before the philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau expressed the idea, these pilgrim settlers were living it. They had grasped that freedom means not lawlessness, but living in accordance with the law that you dictate to yourself. So as inauspicious as this event was at the time, 
taking place so far away from the known world, the centers of power and influence and population and civilization, it proved to be a crucial milestone in the development of self-governing political institutions. The signatories were following the same pattern of self-government that New Englanders would use in organizing their churches. Just as in the congregational churches, ordinary believers came together to create self-governing churches. So with the Mayflower Compact, a group of ordinary people came together to create their own government and in doing so asserted their right to do so. What made these developments even more astonishing was that they amounted to a real-world dramatization of the theory that civil society was based on a social contract among its members. Here was a case where a group had actually done it, and they did it years before the theoreticians such as John Locke and Thomas Hobbes and so on had gotten round to formulating the idea. Not to mention doing it in a century and a half before the Declaration of Independence, which proclaimed that governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed, famous words. And that, I quote, it is the right of the people to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to effect their safety and happiness. But now, having made this amazing connection, let me qualify it in some ways, important ways. First and most importantly, this agreement aboard the Mayflower was not something being fashioned in a pre-political, pre-cultural state of nature, such as the social contract theorists would later posit. Uh, all we have to do is look closely at the document to see that very clearly. The document begins with the words, in the name of God. It proceeds to identify the signatories as, quote, loyal subjects of our dread sovereign, Lord King James. It identifies their voyage as having been undertaken, quote, for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our king and country. It identifies the signatories as endorsing the agreement, quote, in the presence of God and one another. Not exactly the state of nature. And it proposes the goal of framing, quote, just and equal laws that promote the general good of the colony. In other words, this agreement was borrowing at every turn from the religious political, legal, cultural, moral practices of contemporary England. It wasn't starting fresh, not at all. It was building on deep foundations. And even when the Declaration of Independence appeared on the scene, it drew not only on the theories of John Locke, which it most assuredly did, but also on that same deep reservoir of experience uh, and the sum total of 150 subsequent years of American colonial experience of self-government. Self-government in Massachusetts, self-government in Virginia, self-government in Pennsylvania, in all the original colonies. And now let me make one other point. We should not forget in the telling of this story the sheer daring and courage of the pilgrims, the courage that they showed in undertaking this astonishing journey, the astonishing depth of their faith, their commitment to their faith. When they landed at Cape Cod, they might as well, for all practical purposes, have been landing on the surface of the moon. Surely there were those among them, and I don't think just a few, who must have quaked a bit, silently and inwardly, even at their joy in making landfall, and wondered for a moment, and maybe more than a moment, if it had not been all an act of madness that had brought them there, away from everything they had known, everything that was familiar, into the terrors and uncertainties of a strange and very forbidding land. 
Some of what they must have been feeling was very well expressed by William Bradford, their leader, uh, when they arrived at Cape Cod. And let me quote from him. Being now past the vast ocean and a sea of troubles before them in expectations, they had now no friends to welcome them, nor inns to entertain or refresh their weather-beaten bodies, no houses or much less towns to repair to, to seek for succor. Besides, what could they see but a hideous and desolate wilderness full of wild beasts and wild men? And what multitude of them there were they knew not. For whichever way they turned their eyes, save upward to heaven, they could have but little solace or content in respect of any outward object. For summer being ended, all things stand in appearance with a weather-beaten face. And the whole country full of woods and thickets represented a wild and savage hue. And Bradford continues, if they looked behind them, there was a mighty ocean which they had passed and which was now as a main bar or gulf to separate them from all the civil parts of the world. What could now sustain them but the Spirit of God and his grace? What indeed but the religious faith that they possessed so strongly could have sustained them just as it had propelled them across the seas? And yet, we should not forget that the Mayflower Compact did not establish a theocracy, a rule by religion. Yes, its language was ringed about by Christian imagery and assumptions, and those images and assumptions are of central importance to the whole story. Yes, the pilgrims' religious faith was the thing that drove them across the seas in search of a better and more faithful way of life. But the Mayflower Compact, in the Mayflower Compact, the pilgrims wisely chose a government based on civil agreement, not on compulsory divine or biblical authority or edict. Such an arrangement was designed to embrace and include the strangers, those who were not members of the church, but whose contribution to the life of the colony was understood to be essential to its success. Call it pragmatic, call it inclusive, whatever we call it, it's central to our understanding of what happened with the Mayflower Compact. So much would be learned in the nearly two centuries of British North American colonial life, and much of what was learned came out of this same kind of interplay between high hopes and hard, pragmatic realities. Above all else, what was being learned in the English colonies was the habit of self-rule, developed in the lives of free colonists who were too distant from their colonial masters to be governable from afar. The example of the Mayflower Compact can thus serve as a model for all that was to come, including the American Revolution. A free people coming together under God and by their own initiative establishing the institutions by which they would rule themselves. May we continue to look to that model and that example. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. McClay. That was incredible. And as always, we think you are the best qualified to have given us that spectacular presentation. You know, America was the first nation in history founded on a specific creed, a fundamental belief in liberty and equality for every human soul. It is a creed rooted in natural law and natural rights. Its political expression is in limited government, popular sovereignty, the separation of powers, and a vibrant civil society animated by private associations and faith communities of every kind. These ideas are central to America's identity and over time have entered into America's distinct political, social, and economic culture as a nation. 
Dr. Jeffrey Morrison is here with us today to discuss the Mayflower Compact and Religious Liberty in the United States. He will reaffirm the importance of American institutions, particularly religious freedom and the freedom of speech, as well as civil society. We believe it's necessary to respond to the emerging narratives that aim to deconstruct American institutions and the workings of civil society. Dr. Jeffrey Morrison is Professor of American Studies at Christopher Newport University in Newport News, Virginia, and Director of Academics at the Federal Government's James Madison Foundation in Alexandria, Virginia. Dr. Morrison has held faculty positions from Princeton University to the U.S. Air Force Academy. He has published as an author or editor five books on American political culture, including the political philosophy of George Washington. Ladies and gentlemen, let's give Dr. Jeffrey Morrison a warm welcome. Thank you for that introduction. And in the next 12 minutes, I'm going to talk about the Mayflower Compact and its relationship to religious liberty. Not mere toleration, but religious liberty. And, and that is an American innovation. And it begins with the, the people we call the Pilgrims in 1620. It will then continue in the uh, subsequent decades of the 17th century and then in the 18th century, especially in Virginia. Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, George Washington and others will uh, continue to perfect that innovation of religious liberty. But it's the pilgrims, the people we call the pilgrims, who begin it in 1620. We call them pilgrims because that's what they called themselves. One of their leaders, William Bradford, wrote a book called Of Plymouth Plantation, which he describes their life and their motives and so forth. And much of what we know of them uh, comes from Bradford's book. And uh, in that book, he describes why they went where they went and why they did what they did and why they took ship eventually in the Mayflower and came to the New World. Incidentally, it was not the first time that those pilgrims had left England. We call them pilgrims. We also call them separatists. They were a subset of the Puritans, uh, that group of uh, Protestant Christians who had become convinced that the Church of England, the Anglican Church, had, uh, was susceptible to corruption and was, had become overly, in their view, overly Catholic in its liturgy and its faith and practice. And so they hoped to purify it, to return uh, the Anglican Church to a more pristine form of Christianity, one that was more closely modeled on the New Testament and primitive Christianity. Now these pilgrims had concluded that, uh, noble as that work may have been, that it was impossible to do, that the Anglican Church had become irredeemably corrupted, and they could no longer stay in the Anglican Church. They had to leave. So the first place they went was to Holland, to the bustling commercial city of Leiden, where for the most part they were tolerated and not uh, persecuted, as is commonly believed. But they, they did uh, become concerned that their children, and had they stayed, their grandchildren and, and subsequent generations would have been corrupted, or at least influenced by uh, a too secular and commercial environment there, that they were losing some of their their zeal and their first love. So they made a decision, we'll go back to England, we will apply for a charter to go to the New World, and we uh, will hire a ship to take us there. They did apply for a charter from the Crown, uh, which was denied, and so uh, in, in an effort to make their venture legal, they went to the Virginia Company, uh, the, that corporation which um, which outfitted and, and backed the expedition headed by Christopher Newport, Captain Newport, uh, the, the namesake of my university, and which settled eventually on Jamestown Island and, and, and thus planted the first permanent colony, British colony in North America. So there is that legal tie between, um, between the pilgrims and, and the settlers at Jamestown. One could even say that there is commonality of purpose as well. And if you look at uh, a charter that is eventually given to to the to the settlers in Massachusetts, the first charter of 1629, uh, and you look at the first charter of Virginia, for instance. There are 
commercial purposes uh, mentioned there, but there are religious purposes as well in both Virginia and Massachusetts. And so one can see these two parallel um, missions at work in Virginia as well as in New England. But uh, Bradford describes the reason that they went, and uh, this is backed up by later preachers and, and public figures. And the reason they went was not to create a, tol uh, not to create a, a tolerant regime or a, a plantation of religious liberty. They went to rule. They went to create what they consider to be godly commonwealths. And uh, just several years later, I'm going to read uh, a line or two from a sermon in 1629 by the Reverend Samuel Willard, um, in which he said, quote, I perceive they are mistaken in the design of our first planters, whose business was not toleration, but were professed enemies of it. Their business was to settle, and as much as in them lay, secure religion to posterity, according to that way which they believed was of God. And uh, you, can, you can verify this by looking at the first uh, Massachusetts Charter of 1629, in which, quote, the incitement of the natives of the country to the knowledge and obedience of the Christian faith is the principal end of this plantation. So principally religion, but not necessarily toleration, much less religious liberty, which is a more robust um, concept than, than mere toleration. Religion in that, in that instance uh, is considered to be a natural right, we would say a human right, a God-given right, perhaps. So uh, why, did they, why did they draw up this document, these pilgrims uh, on the Mayflower? They set sail in, 16, in uh, September of 1620, crossed the tempestuous ocean. Uh, during that voyage, the main, the main mast cracked. Uh, they thought they might have to return back to England. They were able to repair it, continued on. But in the course of that uh, journey, they were blown off course. They were intending to go, as, as we see from the text of the compact, to the northern parts of Virginia, and that's where they had that patent uh, for that land. And um, so uh, it becomes evident to them when they sight land, when they drop anchor off of what's now Cape Cod, or what is now Cape Cod, uh, that they are not they're not where they intended to go and that the legal document they have is no longer valid, it's moot. And um, the pilgrims, of whom there were roughly 35, are only part of the human cargo of the Mayflower. There were roughly 70 non-pilgrim passengers who had likewise bought uh, their passage on that ship, a retrofitted wine ship was the Mayflower. And uh, they are leaving, they are fleeing England, they're fleeing economic hardship, they're fleeing, in some cases, creditors, in others, they're fleeing the law. So they are kind of a rough bunch of customers in some ways. Pardon me, and the pilgrims overhear uh, them talking once, uh, once everyone realizes we're not where we intended to go and we have no legal controlling authority here. They overhear uh, some of the rougher customers saying, threatening to live without law once they, once they go ashore. And so on the fly, uh, under the pressure of circumstances, they create the first written social contract, which I'm aware, in the history of the Western world. And uh, certainly it's the first written social contract in the colonies, in the British North American colonies. And that is a remarkable thing, and it should not be uh, it should not be undervalued. 1620. This is a full generation, nearly two generations before Thomas Hobbes, uh, other political philosophers like John Locke, and on the continent Jean-Jacques Rousseau, will be writing about a social contract, theorizing about individuals in a in a so-called state of nature agreeing with one another to give up some of their rights in order to form a civil society. Here we see it happening in real time under the pressure of events and uh, it, it, it is a remarkable performance that, uh, that they give there in the galley of the Mayflower. It's a very compact document and so perhaps it would be worth looking at a few lines of it and trying to parse them out. Uh, it begins, In the name of God, Amen. We whose names are underwritten, 
the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord King James, by the grace of God, of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, King, Defender of the Faith, etc. The word etc. is in there. They are invoking God's name. Uh, they could have said what would have been perhaps a more familiar formulation in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. But they don't do that because this is a mixed group of persons uh, whose signatures they are very keen to get on this document, on this social contract. It's sometimes referred to, the Mayflower Compact, as a, as a constitution, but it, it isn't a constitution. It is at best a proto-constitution. It creates a political community consciously uh, of equals, of individuals or perhaps of families who are willing to abide by, they make a promise to one another, we're going to abide by the laws that we ourselves will write in the future so long as those laws are just and meet, they say. We also note here that uh, they uh, confess themselves to be the loyal subjects of their dread sovereign, King James, the same King James who lent his name to the version of the Bible that is still read today, the so-called authorized uh, version, authorized by him. A group of Puritans had been agitating him for, for a cleaner version of the Bible, one that didn't have commentaries and footnotes and so forth, and so he, he sort of begrudgingly gave in and authorized this uh, new translation of the Bible for them, the, the Puritan's Bible, you might say. So they are, they are the loyal subjects of King James. They're not leaving England. They don't intend by leaving England to leave behind their, their subjecthood or to renounce the authority of the king over them. But in a way, it is a declaration of religious independence, isn't it? It is, it is a statement of religious liberty because in leaving, they have left behind his church, the Church of England, of which he is the titular head. And they are saying, uh, your religion we no longer accept. We will not be governed by it. But we, we don't reject your authority. You are our dread sovereign Lord. And we are coming, in essence, for, for God and country, for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our king and country. We're taking this voyage to plant, as they say, the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. But here is the, here is the salient language in this, uh, the operative language in it, as we say. In the presence of God and one another, we covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid. It's kind of a lovely image, isn't it? It's an organic, it's an intimate image, a civil body politic. A body is a unity. Uh, when, when one part of your body hurts, your whole body hurts. And when one part is feeling good, the whole body feels good. So uh, this is a corporate endeavor uh, upon which they're engaged. And they are very keen to get, and they do get, the signatures of every adult male uh, head of household who signs as an equal one signature isn't more weighty than another signature. They are individuals uh, before signing this, but, but after, it's, after it's signing, they are now a community. And that, I think, is uh, one of the great legacies. And their, their actions in leaving England are a statement of, of religious independence. But uh, by crafting this civil body politic, they create the space for religious liberty and laws in the future. Thank you so much, Dr. Morrison. What an incredible presentation. You know, again, we're gonna march back to November 11th, 1620, when the English settlers arrived in the new world seeking religious freedom. But let's remember when the pilgrims landed near Cape Cod, Massachusetts, they quickly realized they needed something more, a document that would make possible a self-governing community. The result, as we have been talking about all day, was the Mayflower Compact, a social contract and covenant for a new political society. This remarkable document is an early example of democratic self-rule, and it became a model for our American founders. But, oftentimes overlooked is how the Christian beliefs of these pilgrims, especially their, commit, their commitment to freedom, 
of conscience laid the groundwork for later debates about religious freedom in American colonies. So I'd like you to join us now for our panel discussion about the origins of religious liberty in America and its enduring importance to our democracy. Our very own Emily Gall, who's the director of the Richard and Helen DeVault Center for Religion and Civil Society at the Heritage Foundation, and an attorney who has defended religious freedom for the last 14 years, will moderate our panel. She has worked on behalf of victims of religious freedom violations in East Asia, the Middle East, Europe, and South Asia at the State Department's Office of International Religious Freedom and Beckett Law. Emily is a member of the Supreme Court Bar and the Bar Associations of both California and the District of Columbia. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Emily Gao. Well, thank you very much to Dr. Morrison for that excellent lecture. And now I'd like to introduce Dr. Eric Patterson, who will join us for this discussion. Dr. Patterson serves as the Executive Vice President of the Religious Freedom Institute. He is scholar at large and past dean of the Robertson School of Government at Regent University and a research fellow at Georgetown University's Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace and World Affairs. Dr. Patterson's interest in the intersection of religion, ethics and foreign policy is informed by two stints at the U.S. Department of State's Bureau of Political Military Affairs and work throughout Africa and Central Asia and South, South Asia. He has served in the government for more than 20 years, both as an officer and commander in the Air National Guard and as a White House fellow working for the director of the U.S. Office of Personnel Management. He's the author or editor of over a dozen books on religion and foreign policy and ethics. He's published extensively on religious freedom, democracy, and democratization. He received PhD in political science from the University of California at Santa Barbara and a master's degree in international politics from the University of Wales. Delighted to introduce Dr. Patterson and Dr. Morrison to join us for this conversation. Thank you. To pick up from where Dr. Morrison left off in his lecture, where he stated that the Mayflower Compact was a declaration of religious independence and that by crafting a civil body politic, the community created the space for religious freedom in law in the future. Dr. Morrison, would you like to elaborate on that statement? Yes, I'd be happy to, thank you. Um, the Mayflower Compact is not a constitution. Occasionally you might hear it referred to as such, but it isn't. Um, it is we a constitution though in that it, it creates that, that social contract, that civil body politic as they refer to themselves, that, that lovely and even intimate organic metaphor for a political community. And it, it extracts a promise from the signatories. They promise that they're going to abide by those laws that they will make themselves, uh, whether they be religious laws, whether they be civil laws, but there aren't any laws laid down. There aren't any... Um, there aren't any institutions of government created by that compact. And so that was my point in saying that it creates a space in the future for religious liberty. And their very act of leaving England, physically separating and leaving the Church of England, which is titularly headed by the king, is, is indeed an, an act of independence. It is a kind of declaration of religious independence. So that's, that's what I meant uh, by that. I fully agree that this is an act of religious independence, and it goes back to covenant theology in the Reformation in the 1500s. As early as the mid-1500s, there are reformers who say we have to separate ourselves from government-led ecclesiastical institutions, state churches. And by the 1580s in England, the predecessors of America's pilgrims or the separatists set up independent denomination uh, congregation first in England and then they moved to the Netherlands. The pilgrims we're talking about who wrote the Mayflower Compact are part of that separatist movement. And what they do is they make a commitment among themselves and before God to set up a religious community where they hold one another accountable and they covenant together as a religious body. That's the basis 
for the Mayflower Compact, and it's rooted in that type of theological commitment. Thank you. Um, in your lecture, Dr. Morrison, you brought up the point of equality, equality between the um, passengers on the Mayflower and who were the pilgrims and then the who were not actually from the pilgrim community and how they were treated with a remarkable level of equality. Could you both elaborate on that further? Dr. Morrison, would you like to go first? Yes, I'd be happy to. Thank you. Um, it, it is a remarkable thing that uh, when you look through the signatories to that and every every adult male signed either for himself or for his he head of household, um, you can you see by their names. Some of them you'll see Esquire, E-S-Q afterwards. Uh, uh, and one of them, um, who actually was my 10th great grandfather, William Brewster, uh, had been to Cambridge, for example. So there are, there are various classes, we might say, represented among the passengers. And I, I mentioned in my remarks that, that many of the, uh, the so-called strangers, the non-pilgrims, were uh, kind of rough customers uh, fleeing the law or fleeing creditors and so forth. But they are all treated as equals in this civil body politic. And, and there is, I guess, some subtle acknowledgement that they might not be members of the religious community or choose not to come under the laws that would be written in the future. And I think there is an implication that if, if not, then they can themselves separate from that from that community. But it's, it is a remarkable thing, I think, in 1620, when most of the world was a, a rigid class, had rigid class systems, that the esquires and, and the common folk and maybe even 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 the lawbreakers among them, uh, the criminals fleeing England, all have equal status civilly in that in that body politic that they're creating. I agree that the level of equality here is very important. And this comes from ideas from the Reformation. These people took very seriously the Reformation idea of the equality or the priesthood of all believers, which is a principle of equality the equality of citizens. And this is rooted in other parts of English history as well that go back to the Magna Carta. But they took it very, very seriously. These are people who are seeking ordered liberty so that they can make, uh, that they can orient their lives based on their faith commitments. And importantly, they do not impose that on their fellow men. The Mayflower Compact is rooted in their theological commitments, but it's also a prudential document so that there's not anarchy when they land in New England. But they do this in a way where they're not imposing a faith tradition, a denomination. They're not imposing their beliefs on the others. They're recognizing a principle of citizenship equality with their fellow passengers. And I would like to just add one thing quickly, if I may. Um, this is not, Plymouth is not Philadelphia, it's not Pennsylvania, it's not the radical egalitarianism of William Penn, who will, who will come just a few years later and, and form his own colony, his own proprietary colony of Pennsylvania. Um, but still, there is, as, as Dr. Patterson's mentioned and I, that, that civil equality. We, we don't want to make too much of it, but it is a remarkable thing, I believe, in, a, in an age when Again, there's this fairly rigid class structure throughout, certainly throughout Europe, from which those folks come. Yes, and you also make the point in your lecture that um, religious freedom, not mere toleration, is an American innovation. Um, do you want to elaborate on that and how the Mayflower Compact led to that? I'll, I'll elaborate on it for certain. Um, I think that there, there's a very rich legacy of the compact in American constitutionalism, though there certainly isn't explicit religious liberty laid down in it. The difference between religious liberty and religious toleration is the difference between the kinds of rights that we believe people have. Religious liberty means that you have a natural human right to freely exercise, first to freely believe, or not believe, and then to freely exercise your faith so long as it doesn't harm anyone else. Toleration is, is different, and that's what, was, uh, that's what was around the globe pretty much the most liberal policy. But toleration means that the government will tolerate you uh, so long as it sees fit. And if you are not, it often implies, as it did in England, for example, 
an established church, a state church that uh, those state churches, Dr. Patterson alluded to all over Western Europe and elsewhere. If there's a state church, then uh, you will almost certainly pay some kind of a penalty. You'll, you'll suffer some kind of civil disability if you are not part of that national church or state church. Give an example. If you were Jewish in England, no matter how bright you were, you couldn't go to the two great universities, state-sponsored universities, Oxford and Cambridge. You had to either convert and profess to be, uh, or perhaps sincerely believe, be an Anglican, or you had to go to some dissenting academy. So that's what toleration means. The government will tolerate you. Uh, it is more like a civil right, what we would call a civil right, almost like a driver's license or something that the government issues and the government can take back. Religious liberty is that natural human right that no government can take away from you. And I, I do think that the compact and then uh, documents that follow in its train do create a space for that, but they certainly don't, the compact certainly doesn't explicitly guarantee that in, in sort of natural right terms. We might even think of the Declaration of Independence, for example, as a sort of inheritor of this, of this uh, space for freedom that the Mayflower Compact begins to sketch out. Excellent. Dr. Patterson, do you want to comment on the uh, uniqueness of religious liberty um, as an American innovation? Yes, and I'd just make two points that relate to the Mayflower Compact in its, in its era. And they both have to do with the statements early in the compact that are some of the language of the day that this is happening in the name of God and to advance the gospel. And these are important points from a religious liberty standpoint. The first one is this, the other type of colonies that were being placed in the new world, whether they were Portuguese or especially Spanish, imposed Christianity by the edge of the sword. And what's so different in the English colonies, but especially here and in Southern Virginia, is that there is not the imposition of Christianity by the sword. The, the pilgrims in particular, and people who come after them like Roger Williams, attempt to winsomely share the gospel with the Native Americans, but they do not do it at the point of the sword. And second, whether it's in Plymouth Plantation or Pennsylvania, Virginia, or elsewhere, most of these religious communities that are set up in the colonial era are, have a right of exit. So people come into the community, they may be, they have to follow, they may have to follow a, the covenant, the religious covenant of the community, but they can freely leave. No one forces them to stay there. They could go back to England. They could go someplace else. And that's a pretty big principle in this era where toleration, as Dr. Morrison said, was considered a very liberal idea. The right to exit is a huge difference. It's a huge innovation that really is, is rooted in what these pilgrims did. Thank you. Um, now, both of you have written about religious pluralism as well and commented on it. Can you describe how the Mayflower Compact and the creation of the civil body politic um, is informative to those who are interested in religious pluralism today? Perhaps I'll start on that. The, the pilgrims were separatists from the Church of England, as Dr. Morrison said. And amazingly, in 1620, they write this little document that organizes a civil body politic. It's a social compact, but it's a social compact decades before Hobbes, decades before Locke, decades before Rousseau. And so it, it, it's rooted in a, in a set of theological commitments that predate the social compact theory that we teach in history, law, and political science. And that's because they had this notion rooted in covenant theology, that, there, that, that individual believers in a community could make decisions about the faith and that there should not be a level of interference in the conscientious religious commitments that someone makes or that a community makes, that religious communities, and this becomes the congregational churches and similarly the Presbyterian churches, a high level of autonomous decision-making at the local community level rooted in these types of theological commitments. Dr. Morrison, do you want to comment on uh, the question about religious pluralism? Yes, um, 
certainly today we live in a very religiously plural society. We live in a nation state. Uh, Plymouth Plantation is not a nation state. It's not a state. Uh, it's not even formally a colony of England. Um, they don't have a charter when they leave, uh, like William Penn will bring with him, for example, to found his, his proprietary colony. All they have is a patent. That's a, that's a legal document which they get from the Virginia Company, and it just gives them title to certain lands. And uh, so it is, it, they're, they're on their own hook, if you, if you will. And uh, so they are forced, as Dr. Patterson mentioned, they're sort of forced uh, to be, to be um, liberal and egalitarian through the pressure of circumstances. That's one thing I think that makes this document so remarkable. It was done on the fly. It was done, it was written, I think, literally in the galley of the Mayflower before they set foot, perhaps, at Plymouth Rock. And um, so, but, but is there religious plurality among them? There is. Um, there's, there's a great deal of religious plurality in uh, Pennsylvania as well. So I think we can learn something from them about uh, how to get along with our holding our deepest differences religiously. Um, and uh, I believe to this day, uh, polls indicate that Americans, upwards of 90 percent of us still believe in some kind of supreme being or higher power. So among the industrialized nations of the world, America is is still uniquely religious. And uh, can we learn something from this experiment um, in, in Plymouth? I think we can. I think it has a legacy of constitutionalism that is passed down in the subsequent documents, even hundreds of years later. But uh, again, I think uh, it's, it's a remarkable production for its time and for its circumstances. Could you also comment on how signing of the Mayflower Compact, this creation of this social contract, influenced that community itself, its behaviors, its conduct, its treatment of, of the members of that community and others? I'm going to turn that to Dr. Patterson first. I think that what that this sets the groundwork for a level of cooperation that just has to happen. The this is only about a hundred people. They're facing winter off of Cape Cod. They've just had this long uh, ship's voyage. They're, they've missed the harvest and things, and about half of them die that winter. And so we have to recognize that the Mayflower Compact is rooted in a set of worldview assumptions. And at the same time, it's a desperate commitment. We have to work together or we're not going to survive this. But it lays the groundwork for the type of colony that Plymouth is over the next half century. And that is a place where there's a lot of individual equality. It's a place where there is not the types of religious restrictions that we see in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. It's a place where Roger Williams goes when he needs to have um, a place to get away from uh, the Massachusetts Bay Colony. We know that there's efforts to share the gospel with the, with the American Indians there, but that they're non-coercive. And so it really does set the groundwork for a model that is cooperative among citizens, but not coercive. I think that's very well said. And I'll only add very briefly that once again, we have to keep in mind that the Plymouth colony is different from the Massachusetts Bay colony and uh, the different leadership. They have a slightly different ethos. They have different uh, ends and goals. Um, and it's, it's Boston, what becomes the city of Boston and the Massachusetts Bay colony that is the sort of powerhouse and what becomes the state of Ma the colony of Massachusetts and then later the state of Massachusetts. So uh, that is led by John Winthrop. A different sort of man than, than um, Elder Brewster, a different sort of man uh, than William Bradford. Uh, he's a lawyer, for one thing. Um, he, uh, he has a, a rather checkered career there in Massachusetts Bay, being elected governor and then being deposed and elected again as his literal fortunes go up and down uh, in England. So uh, Massachusetts Bay is the and the city of Boston, they are the kind of powerhouse and literally tens of thousands of people come in, in, in waves uh, from old England to New England, but they tend to settle there. The, the Plymouth Colony is a smaller enterprise. It is first 
And I think that document, the, the uh, compact, is very dispositive for things that come later. But we should remember that. And, and when we think we speak of the Pequot War, we speak of things like that. Um, there, there are different communities engaging the Native Americans and engaging themselves and the strangers among them in slightly different ways. In our closing section, would you like to comment on anything else that uh, we can learn as Americans today from the Mayflower Compact that perhaps has been overlooked? Well, if I may uh, go first, I'll try to be very brief. Um, I've alluded to this constitutional legacy of the Mayflower Compact, and, and I don't want to make too much of it. But when we look even at the structure of this document uh, with, with a, a preamble, if you will, uh, not exactly we the people, but, a, 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 you know, we the undersigned, and then, and then uh, a statement of purposes of their journey, and then the creation of that civil body politic, and then a kind of pledge at the end, a sort of pledge of mutuality, uh, and, then, and then the signatories. Um, that should look familiar to Americans even today, right? That looks like the Declaration of Independence in a sense. That looks like the federal constitution in a sense. And it might be a bit of a stretch to go from we the undersigned to we the people, but uh, sections of a document, again, with a self-identification, with a preamble, a statement of purposes, then an allusion to, this, to the, the com political community, and then a pledge of mutuality and, and signatories. That is, uh, that's part of our DNA, I'd like to say. I think that the very first uh, chromosome or whatever we want to call it is planted there at Plymouth. And, and like physical DNA uh, in families, you know, traits are inherited, aren't they? And sometimes they lie dormant for a generation or two and then resurface. And sometimes a grandchild is, is remarkably similar to a grandparent, you know, in, in features and things. So that would be my parting remark about the Mayflower Compact. I think it's that sort of a thing. It's, it, is, it is our political DNA. And even though they were just a very small kind of self-funded and, and, and self-generated uh, community, religious and political community, that document has far-reaching implications, vast implications for a future in American constitutional history. Emily, I agree with that point with Dr. Morrison. And we have to remember, as we celebrate the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower Compact, that the people who wrote the Declaration of Independence were about as far removed historically from the Mayflower Compact as you and I are from the U.S. Civil War. It's a, it's, it's a century and a half. And so this seed early on, one that then the framers of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution that they cite as important in the, in the genealogy of ideas in the West, it, it, it really can't be overstated. And it's important for Americans, by the way, great Americans like Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King Jr. and Ronald Reagan have done this. They look back in history and they've recognized how important the Mayflower Compact and these decisions that early colonists made uh, in setting the United States on a course that over time becomes expanded notions of rights, liberty, citizenship, and the free exercise of religion. And think about how different, again, 1620 with the Mayflower Compact was than the setting up of Spanish colonies or Portuguese colonies with high levels of slavery. Think about how different the experience was in, in, in Plymouth, but also shortly in Rhode Island, in the Dutch colonies that become New York and New Jersey, uh, at times in Massachusetts, Virginia. Think about how different the 1620s, 30s, and 40s are from what's going on in Europe at the same time, whether it's the English Civil War, which is about to commence, or the Thirty Years' War. And, and there's a religious component to all of that violence. What a difference to have the Mayflower Compact and to have these individuals who out of their theological commitments decide to set up a civil body politic and to freely express their religion without coercion. It's a, it's a very, very important seed in U.S. and in world history. 
Well, thank you both very much for helping us to understand uh, the origins of the Mayflower Compact and its continuing influence on our body politic today. As Americans continue to discuss um, what is happening in our country, it is important for us to look at historical documents like the Mayflower Compact and to see the legacy of equality, the legacy of covenant uh, that we have with one another as we look forward. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Hi, I'm Katie Gorka, Director for Civil Society of the Heritage Foundation's Fulner Institute. Thank you so much for joining us for this first webcast on the Mayflower Compact, which was the first step in our great American experiment. Please be sure to join us for our second webcast, which will go deeper into the Mayflower Compact and the rule of law. In the meantime, I encourage you to read the Mayflower Compact. At a mere 200 words, it's an easy read. And yet, without it, you won't really understand just how extraordinary their experiment in self-rule of equals was. And what's also great for today is that it shows us a path forward at a time when our nation feels so divided it will help show us a path forward in unity. Thanks again for joining us. Goodbye.